today we're going to kind of step into the present a little bit, our present lives. What does it look like to live a life that is truly life as Jesus um, defined it? And we're going to talk today kind of about our view of ourselves and view of our life in general. In the next several weeks, we're going to go into other areas of our life like um, kind of uh, relationships and our work life and some other um, dimensions of our life. But today we're going to talk just kind of more in general terms about sort of how we view ourselves, how we view God, and how we view life. Um, I ran across this fascinating article uh, a few months ago that was entitled, (coughs) America is Obsessed with Happiness and It's Making Us Miserable. Uh, It was by Ruth Whipman, and um, she is a very insightful article because she's British, and she had come to America sometime in the last decade uh, with her husband, and um, so she's been kind of learning more and more what American culture is like, and her argument in this article is that the biggest cultural difference between life in the UK and in America is America's fixation with happiness. And she writes in this article, I want to put a couple of quotes up here. Uh, Ruth Whitman writes, happiness in America has become the overachiever's ultimate trophy. It outranks professional achievement and social success, family, friendship, and even love. Americans seem to have a deep cultural aversion to negativity. The pressure to remain positive at all times often results in some complicated mental gymnastics. For example... My son's report card at preschool divided his performance not into strengths and weaknesses, but into strengths and emerging strengths. She continues, to an outsider, uh, it can sometimes feel as though the entire American population has a nationwide standardized happiness exam to take, and everyone is frantically cramming the night before to get a good grade. It appears that somewhere along the line, the joy has been sucked out of American happiness. There, there was a, a team of psychologists at UC Berkeley that did a study on happiness. And they asked people to, to, to rate how much happiness was a goal in their life. Like, how high of a priority is it to be happy, seek happiness? So they asked that. And then they asked those same people how, how many of them are actually happy. Because they're trying to understand the correlation between being happy and having happiness as a goal. And they found something really interesting. They found that the more somebody viewed happiness as a goal in life, the less they were happy. The more they were prone to feeling discontent and experiencing depression and loneliness and isolation and those kinds of things. Um, one more line from Ruth Whitman's article. I thought this just kind of struck at the heart of this research. For all the effort that Americans are putting into hunting down happiness, they are not actually getting any happier. I, so, so that's kind of a cultural commentary, and, and I think we see, um, especially in our social media age, a lot of this playing out. But, but transitioning now a little bit into sort of the biblical world and how do we respond as people of faith. Um, to set up happiness, in ter- as it's defined in the Western world, in America, to set up that kind of happiness as a life goal is to plan for profound disappointment. That's what, that's what the result is. Because happiness in the modern Western world is defined by, it is rooted in things that cannot deliver. 
at least not long term. They might deliver in a momentary sense, but they won't over the long haul because the Western definition of happiness is, is wealth, it's prestige, it's professional success, it's being admired, being independent, dialing everything in perfectly with our families, you know, our level of education, these kinds of things. And those things are not inherently bad. There's nothing wrong with any one of those things. But they at best give us maybe a a moment or a brief season of what we would call happiness. But they do not address the deep questions, the soul-level needs that we all have, the very purpose and design of our lives. They don't speak to that. And so they cannot deliver a real joy These things don't tell us who we are and who we were made to be. Chasing superficial happiness or shallow positivity does not yield a real resilient joy that can weather the storms of life. I mean, think of it this way. If you uh, tether your happiness to your job, what happens if you lose your job? Or if it's based on a relationship that you have or that you want, what happens if that relationship dissolves or it never materializes in the first place? Or what if your happiness is tied directly to your physical health and you become seriously ill or a family member becomes seriously ill? What happens if your happiness is tied to your bank balance or the bank balance that you want And you either never get there or you have it, but something unexpected comes along and costs you everything. The happiness crumbles because it's based on things that cannot deliver what we're, they cannot bear the burden we're placing on them. Jesus said he wants to give us life to the full, and that means a life full of joy, uh, a real joy, even when, especially when, Life is painful and challenging because it's not based on superficial happiness. It's something deeper. It's based on a life-giving personal relationship with Jesus. You know, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave this very memorable um, uh, metaphor for our life. And, And he said, someone who follows him, someone who follows Christ, is like a wise person who builds their house on a rock. You know, when the rains come, the floods come, the wind, the house stands firm because it's based on something that is strong and true and durable. But a person, by contrast, who chases happiness, who searches for meaning in things other than the creator, that person is like a person who builds their house on the sand. When the rain comes, the floods, the wind collapses. And I think the lesson for us is that our jobs, our relationships, our financial status, our political persuasions, whatever these dimensions are in our lives that are important to us, they they cannot withstand the winds of real pain or the floods of confusion or the troubles that rain down on us. They cannot. So how do we do this? How do we build a house, the house of our life, on the rock that will not crumble how do we stop chasing the, the superficial happiness that this article and these researchers were exploring? How do we enjoy the life that's truly life? That's what we're going to begin to discover today. So turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, if you're not uh, familiar with the layout of Scripture, uh, Philippians is in the New Testament, kind of in the middle-ish. Um, <clears throat> 
It's a, one of the shorter books. Of course, we'll have the uh, text on the screen as well, but in case you want to open up a hard copy. So Philippians is actually a letter, a first century letter, that was sent to the church in the city of Philippi. Now, here's a map of where Philippi is located. It's located in the north of Greece. Um, And the apostle Paul had started the church there. When Paul rolled into Philippi, They'd never heard of Jesus. He was the first guy there with this message of the gospel. And um, Philippi, here's a picture of what uh, historians believe it looked like at the time. Uh, Philippians was what was known as a Roman colony, which meant that the Romans deliberately um, set up this city and, and settled Roman military veterans there. And so it was a city that was very loyal to Caesar probably thought of him as a god, as a lot of people in the Roman world did. Um, There were gold mines near this city, and it was located on the Ignatian Way. You can kind of see the road there. That was the most important east-west road in the Roman Empire. And so it was just constant trade. And so it was a rich city. Um, And so the people in this city, in Philippi, their allegiances were to Rome, to money, to power, And Paul is writing to this young, fledgling church in this city, to these believers in Jesus, and he's going to encourage them in this letter, Philippians. And in this letter, he speaks to this issue of where you find your value and what will lead to a life of true joy. Um, Because just like today, the people in that city in Philippi were putting their trust in, they were putting their hope in the wrong things that would not deliver. And so Paul speaks exactly to this issue. So let's look, Philippians 3, starting um, in verse 4. Kind of halfway through verse 4. Paul says this. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, highlight that if you're taking notes, uh, reasons to put confidence in the flesh. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness uh, based on the law, faultless. So we'll stop there. Um, Paul is starting to share his story. If you know anything about his life, he's, he's telling part of his story. Uh, before he met Christ and Jesus changed his life, um, his, for his standing with God and his standing with others, he trusted all the wrong things. Um, he thought he was something special and worth something because he had the right family background, the right ethnicity, the correct religious affiliation, a certain professional prestige. He lived a publicly moral life. He followed all the right rules. He opposed the right people. He was a persecutor of Christians before he became a Christian. And so what Paul is saying here is he curated a life for himself that he thought would bring happiness and a sense of self-worth, and it did not deliver. He did all the right things, and it didn't deliver. And I think the ancient Philippians reading this, they would have, in hearing Paul's story, been urged to think about all the things they were seeking 
instead of God. And, and we need to think about that, too. You know, what are we striving for or relying on instead of Jesus? Or maybe we've kind of divided our trust. Like, yeah, I trust in Jesus like 40 percent. But the other 60, you know, I really trust in these things because um, I don't I, I don't fully trust him. Because we can trust in, like really trust in things like money, uh, popularity, the neighborhood that we live in, a certain political perspective, even our physical appearance. Um, but I think the, the most dangerous thing from this lesson of Paul's is we can place our trust in things that seem good and moral and right, but they are still standing in the place of Jesus. That's what Paul was saying. I mean, we, it, it is possible for us to idolize our families, to idolize, you know, charitable work or, or grand gestures of faith, public displays of faith. I mean, look at Paul's list. He was pursuing a life of kind of public piety. And he says, despite how religious and moral everything was, his life was built on a house of sand because it wasn't founded on Christ. And he continues, starting in verse 7, the next few verses, to show how his whole perspective changed. So I, I want to read through it once, and then uh, if you're taking notes, we're going to have a, a number of things we're going to circle and highlight. There are really rich few verses. So let's keep reading. Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let's stop there. So he starts out by saying, whatever were gains to me, I consider them loss. If you're taking notes, circle those two words, gains and loss. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. Uh, Paul originally wrote in Greek, and in the original text of the New Testament in Greek, the word for gains kind of had the sense of advantage. Um, and the, and the, the word for loss is closer to kind of what we think of as forfeit. So he was basically saying, whatever I had in my life that I thought was an advantage, like, I have forfeited those things. I've given them up. Why did he do this? He tells us in verse 7, highlight this, for the sake of Christ. More literally, you could translate it because of Christ. Because of Christ, um, the things in my life that I thought were advantages, I've given them up because I have discovered they are flimsy and fleeting compared to Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 8, he kind of ups the ante. He says, not only do I consider, you know, the things that were advantages to me a loss, I consider everything a loss. Highlight that. Everything is a loss because of this wonderful phrase. Highlight this one. Uh, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
He's saying everything pales in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ personally as Lord. For whose sake, Paul says, he has lost all things. Highlight that. That is now the third time he's used a word like loss or lost in these couple of verses. He's lost all things. And then Paul dials it up even more. I think this is like his arguments coming to a boil. Um, He says everything he chased in life to be happy and have a sense of worth and self-confidence, it is all garbage. Circle that word if you're taking notes. It's garbage. Now, he's not saying that some of these things he was pursuing are like wrong or immoral or meaningless in and of themselves, but he's saying the pursuit of those things, the trust in those things was garbage. The elevation of those things, the idolization of those things was garbage. By the way, garbage is a very tame translation of the word Paul used, which literally meant dung. It's refuse, the elevation of anything above Christ. Anything we think will give us value or a sense of worth is worthless. It's garbage. It doesn't compare to knowing Christ and being found in him. Um, I would highlight that, the, the, those uh, words. It says, um, and to be found in him, in Christ. Now, that's a really interesting little phrase there. To be found in him. You know, Paul... We have 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament. He never used the word Christian. That wasn't his favorite designation for a follower of Jesus. His language for a follower of Jesus was someone who's in Christ. And that's what he's saying here, you know, to be found in him, in Christ. Um, And I think the reason Paul liked that language is it speaks to the union with Christ that happens when we are saved by Jesus and he comes into our life. This is all over the New Testament. You place your faith in Christ and you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You're joined spiritually to Jesus and there is a union between us and Christ now. Now, it's hard to understand exactly what that looks like, but basically when God looks at you, if you've been saved by Christ, when God looks at you, he sees you and he sees Christ in you. Whatever's true of Jesus in God's eyes is now true of you. There's a union there. And so when Paul says in Christ, those, are, those who are in Christ or being in him, that's what he's getting at is this union we have. I just read a book recently. If you're looking for um, uh, an inspiring and also challenging book, um, it's actually called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn. It was really um, just a, a wonderful exploration of the biblical topic of our union with Christ as a central to our faith. And he talks about what this means. I want to read something he, he wrote. He said, being in Christ is to discover our true God-given identity. You are alive in him, moving with him through this world, clothed in all his benefits and blessings. You are in Christ. This means... You don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempts to find or craft an acceptable identity or your tireless work to manage your own reputation, these are over and done. You can rest. When God looks at you, he sees you hidden in Jesus. This is freedom. This is confidence. This is good, good news. 
So Paul is talking about this. He's writing about his own story and the freedom he has discovered of being found in Christ. And, and his whole life beforehand does not compare. And then he says in verse 9, because we are in Christ, we're united to him, highlight this phrase, we have a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. A righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, righteousness is one of those words that you really only encounter in the Bible, I think. Um, I mean, sometimes in common language we'll say, you know, that's a self-righteous person or something. But this meaning of righteousness we don't really use in common conversation. What it means essentially is having a right standing with God, a right relationship with God, uh, the relationship we're meant to have with God. And so Paul is saying that the right relationship we have with God is not something to be strived for or achieved on our own strength. It is given to us. It comes to us from God on the basis of our faith in Christ. This is the gospel, the good news right here, that we have a right standing with God. We are made right with our creator because of Jesus and because of our faith in him. Now, um, I do want to kind of clarify something here because I think just like Paul was just striving, striving, working hard, we can make almost anything in our lives an effort. And we so easily, particularly in American kind of individualistic society, we make faith a work. And it's not supposed to be. So we read a statement like that, righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, and we think, okay, i got to have faith. Man, I, you know, if I'm going to have this right relationship with God, i got to have faith. I'm going to you know, be at church all the time. I'm going to serve and I'm going to give and I'm going to stack everything up just right and pull all the levers and just dial my spiritual life in and I'm going to be the most faithful person. And in the process, we make faith entirely about us. And, 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 and now it's basically we have to be good at having faith in order for God to accept us. We've put all the burden back on ourselves. But when Paul used the word faith in the New Testament, it is not the Americanized, you know, uh, DIY faith that, we, that it often is. When he used that word, it had the connotation of trust. So we have a right standing that comes from God on the basis of our trust in Christ. And what a difference that makes. Because when you're trusting in someone for something, it's not about you being awesome at having the trust. It's about their trustworthiness. So it's about the worthiness of Jesus. He is trustworthy. We place our trust in him and ask him to save us, and he does. And we can trust that. And, and we don't have to worry if our, if our trust in him is still a little wobbly, you know? Uh, you can come to him and say, I trust in you. I believe but I still have questions and struggles. Lord, I need you to help me in those areas. And, and God accepts that because it is not about you being awesome at having faith in God. It is about the awesome God who is worthy of our trust. That is the gospel. He says it right here. Paul's saying a right relationship with God is not something to be strived for or achieved. And he just told us his life story. His whole life was striving and achieving. And you can't do it. So Paul covered a lot of ground in these verses. So I want to just kind of 
summarize it in my own words a little bit, just to make sure we kind of get everything he was saying. Paul, Paul was essentially saying, you know, I used to put my trust in superficial things. I strive for happiness. I, I tried to do everything that would give me a sense of worth and a sense of acceptability with God, try and impress God, try and impress others with my behavior. And I have given up on all of those things. I have forfeited them because compared to knowing and following Jesus, they are meaningless. They are garbage. My relationship with Jesus, my union with him, has given me that right relationship with God, something I could never attain on my own, and it's worth more than anything to me. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. You know, we sang this earlier, and I think this is basically what Paul's saying. Take this whole earth, but give me Jesus. Take everything I used to pursue and I thought was good and would earn me a certain standing. Take it all. The one thing of surpassing worth over everything is Jesus. So I want to read just a couple more verses. Uh, Paul continues to basically say, I'm still on this journey of growth. I, I still, I haven't arrived. Look what he says in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, we talked about that last week about shame, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love that phrase in verse 12, and I would highlight this if you're taking notes. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I think that is a wonderful summation of knowing and following Jesus, of living life that's truly life, is that Jesus has reached out his hand to you to lift you up, and we are grasping back. But he initiated this whole thing. We are not pursuing happiness as a goal or seeking, you know, joy or happiness in inanimate things like money and status, which will not deliver. We are reaching back to the Savior who first reached to us. You know, a car cannot tell you who you are. Um, Living in a certain neighborhood will not lift you up if you lose a loved one. Having a certain number of followers on social media will mean nothing uh, if you lose your job. Even striving to be a highly moral person won't remind you of God's unconditional love for you. Your investment portfolio does not speak to the meaning of life. Your dream job won't help you if you feel lonely. You know, Jim Carrey uh, famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. We know what the answer is. You see, if you're worth... If your joy comes from Christ, again, it's like building the house of your life on the rock, you know. So it's still very hard if you lose your job, but you know God loves you and he'll lead you through what happens next. It's disappointing if a relationship ends or it doesn't materialize, but you weren't looking to that relationship to give you value. 
you know that Jesus treasures you and you are worth everything to him. It, it's still devastating if you become seriously ill or a loved one does, but you know that Jesus is with you and he really understands. If you don't believe me, go read the account of Lazarus in John 11 when Jesus is just broken over the pain and sadness of illness and death and loss that his friends are going through. He really understands. It is still disorienting when your financial security falls away, but you know that God's with you. He's going to take care of you. You haven't given your heart to money. So your greatest treasure is Jesus, even in a time of economic uncertainty. You see, we're not grasping for happiness as the world does. Followers of Christ are instead grasping the hand of a person, Jesus, who has reached to offer us true life and true joy. And he does. And this is why, and some of you have probably had this experience, you can go into places around the world like the slums of Mumbai or Honduras or other places of poverty, and you see the church there, and you encounter people who have nothing by our standards, and they just have this surprising and infectious joy and this resilient faith in the face of daily troubles that we never have. Because you know what? They have built the house of their life on the rock, and they may not even have an actual house. You see, Paul teaches us here the pursuit of anything above Christ, the elevation of anything, the idolization of anything, trusting in anything above Jesus is garbage. It will not deliver. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth, as he said, of knowing Jesus and growing in him. I want to end on a pretty serious note. Um, Check out this picture. Um, (laughs) I built the whole message around this picture. I I didn't know what I was going to preach. I found this picture, and I was like, I'll just build the whole thing from here. I'm kidding. But it is a great picture. (laughs) A tiny baby in a big suit. Um, I actually think that this is a... uh, a very memorable metaphor and a a, a very biblical metaphor for what it looks like to know Christ, to be in Christ, and to grow in him. Um, So just keep this image in your mind as if you could get it out. Um, (laughs) In Galatians 3, another one of Paul's letters, he says this, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is another way of speaking of our union with Christ. We have been clothed with Christ. Jesus, we are new creations. He has given us sort of new life clothes, and they might not fit at first. You know, they're they're not really the clothes we're used to. They're not the sort of clothes the world wears. And then I love this in 1 Peter. uh, Jesus' disciple Peter writes this in chapter 2. Like newborn babies... Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. So there's this idea, and it's, it's, these are just two examples, but it's throughout the New Testament, that even though you've been saved by Christ, you've been clothed with Christ, you are in Christ, you are a new creation, there's a, there's a need to grow and mature from there. Um, Jesus wants us to grow up spiritually into this new identity and enjoy it to increasingly 
fit the new clothes we've been given. Um, Not trying to attain it in our own strength, because again, we've already been clothed. We don't need to try to earn the clothes. We've been given them. We've been clothed with Christ, but we are meant to grow up into that new apparel and embody it and enjoy it. That is what this life looks like, of taking hold of the life that's truly life, is growing into the new life we've already been given in Christ. This is how to experience joy and meaning and purpose, is to understand nothing compares to knowing Jesus, trusting in him as he shapes and grows us more and more into his likeness. That is a joy that can carry us through the ups and downs of our days and years.